Well, hey, how are we doing? Good morning. Can you guys hear me? Okay, there we go. Um, do me a favor, grab your Bibles, turn to Ephesians 3. We are in a study um, going through the book of Ephesians, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And today we're going to be in Ephesians 3. We're going to do the whole chapter. That'll get us to the halfway point of this study. Now, if you haven't been with us, let me bring you up to speed a little bit on how the book is structured so you know that what, Paul, what Paul's trying to accomplish. In chapter 1, Paul spends a ton of time talking about who we are in Christ. In Christ, you were chosen before the foundations of the world. In Christ, you have been redeemed. In Christ, you have been forgiven. In Christ, you have an inheritance. In Christ, you have been sealed. Statement after statement, trying to identify who we are in Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, he explains how we got there. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy, for by grace are you saved through faith. We are his workmanship. So trying to establish in this book a foundation, it's doctrine, it's, it's talking about specifics of the faith, because what's going to happen in chapter 4, he's going to get really practical. He's going to say, because these things are true, here's how you ought to live. Big idea this morning, if you're keeping notes, is simply this. From your identity flows your activity. You can't be asked, what am I supposed to do before you understand who you are? So he's spending all of this time in chapters 1, chapters 2, focused on your identity. And his concern is that the church in Ephesus doesn't forget who they are, that they understand who they are, because identity theft, quite honestly, it, it, it's a thing, it's a problem. It's interesting Last June, in June of 21, a man, most of you won't recognize this name, but a man by the name of Blake Hall made big news. Blake Hall is the owner of a company by the name of um, ID.me. It's a major player in online security, online identity verification, battling against identity theft. And last June, he made a startling claim. He claimed that $400 billion dollars not million, $400 billion had been stolen over the past 18 months from the U.S. government via identity theft. In the face of the pandemic, our government, in trying to keep our economy from grinding to a halt, had plowed a lot of stimulus dollars into the economy through unemployment benefits to help American workers who found they couldn't work. And now it was being claimed that of the $800 billion that had been earmarked to help U.S. citizens, struggling American employees, one out of every $2, $400 billion had been stolen. Congressman Kevin Brady, and I quote, he said this, he said, the greatest theft of American tax dollars in history has risen unabated to $400 billion, with nearly half of all pandemic unemployment spending lost to fraud by criminals. Now, please hear me. This isn't U.S. citizens making false unemployment claims. You can't get to 400 billion that way. This isn't people with jobs claiming that they were unemployed defrauding the government. What was chronicled here is sophisticated fraud. Um, Nigerian hackers, international syndicates, cartels, government being wiped out one out of every two dollars now, now to put this in perspective because you put enough zeros in there we can't even think of what 400 billion is 400 billion is more than the annual budget of the our u.s army and navy combined does that bother any of you 
Like, you got to understand, when, when he made that claim in June of 2021, that sent our states and our federal government scrambling. They did their own research. They looked into the matter on their own, and they came back and they said, no, I, I think the numbers are a little bit exaggerated. I think Mr. Hall was a little bit hyperbolic. We don't think the problem is that big. And near the end of last year, Bloomberg News reported that our government has decided that it wasn't 400 billion, it wasn't that big a problem, it was only 100 billion. Feel better? By the way, Blake Hall stands by his number, 400 billion. And I tell you that just to tell you, identity theft is a thing. It, it's dangerous. In the Bible, if I were to take you to Matthew 13, you would see that for the followers of Jesus Christ, identity theft is a thing as well. In Matthew 13, Jesus is giving his first parable. It's the parable of a sower who scatters seed across four soils. And in the middle of Matthew 13, he's explaining uh, the parable to his disciples. And he says, of the four soils, the first soil, the seed falls on rocky ground. The, the, the word never takes root. Birds come, pluck it, take it away. It, it, it never, it's not even talking about anybody who's heard the word and responded to it. But of the next three soils, look at what he says. Verse 20 of Matthew 13, he says, For what was sown on rocky ground, that's the one who hears the word and receives it, immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, he immediately falls away. Verse 22 as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. And then he'll go on in verse 23, say there's a fourth soil, and on that soil, when the seed hits that soil, it's good soil, it takes root, it produces fruit, sometimes 100, sometimes 60, sometimes 30-fold. That's the fruit that, or that's the soil where the gospel really takes root. But if you look at the math of Matthew 13, there's three soils where the gospel is heard, it is received with joy, but it doesn't last in two of the three cases, 67% of the time. The identity is lost, it is stolen, and the thieves and the culprits, they're listed in the text. In verse 21, it says tribulation and persecution cause it to endure for a little while, but then fall away. And in verse 22, it says, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it's unfruitful. He lists the thieves. Tribulation, persecution, cares of this world, deceitfulness of riches. And as Paul writes Ephesians 3, he's sitting in prison. He knows the church in Ephesus, the believers in Ephesus, are surrounded by these thieves. They're going through tribulation. They're going through persecution. There's, there's cares. There's concerns. And one of the things that he's concerned about is he's not able to be with them. He's in prison in Rome, and he's scared that they're going to be discouraged, not only by their trials, but the fact that Paul is in prison. So he takes chapter 3. It's split into two parts. The first is a rant. He just goes off in a different direction. He goes on a sidebar. That takes us through verse 13. And then the second half of the chapter is a prayer where he prays for the church in Ephesus. So we're just going to look at these two parts, kind of the, the rant and the request. 
Look at verse 1. It says this, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. Now, remember last week, Cal talked about unity in the church. And do you guys remember that there's this really deep-rooted hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles? Do you guys remember that? Like Jews weren't even allowed to assist in the birth of a Gentile child. Like, it, 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 it's, it's bad. I was trying to think in my life if I've ever kind of witnessed that type of deep hatred between people groups. We've experienced some of it in our country. I think this would exceed even what we've experienced. But I was thinking back to when we adopted our twin girls, Alex and Nicole from Romania. They were six years old. They're 30 now. So roughly 25 years ago, we were traveling back and forth to Romania through the adoption process. And one of the things that we learned when you went to Romania is any major city, Bucharest, Timisoara, Arad, any major city that you went to, the, the, the city often had beggars. And most often the, baker, the beggars were children. And most often when you saw the children that were begging, they had broken arms, they had misformed limbs, they had crooked legs, they had burns. And what we came to discover was those were gypsy children. Those were Romanians, and then there was another group within Romania that were gypsies, and the gypsy parents would maim their children to make them more effective beggars. We were working through a church. It was a Christian orphanage. The church, the believers in the church, hated the gypsies. Wouldn't have anything to do with them. This was hatred beyond anything that I had ever seen before. When we left Romania, we flew from Bucharest to Zurich, which is in Switzerland, and we missed our connecting flight back to the United States. So now we were stuck at the airport in Zurich having to spend the night. And Alex and Nicole, because we just adopted them, they weren't U.S. citizens, they were Romanian citizens. Romanian citizens were not allowed into Switzerland. We had to spend time if we couldn't find another flight in the terminal or at the gate. Why weren't Romanians allowed into Switzerland? Because of several years earlier, a band of gypsies had crossed over from Romania into Switzerland. They'd settled and camped around one of their lakes and they'd eaten all of their swans. The Swiss were ticked. Wouldn't even let any Romanians into the country because of what the gypsies had done. And they hated the gypsies. As we got the girls into our home, and uh, they couldn't speak any English. They only spoke Romanian. Kristen's back going to kindergarten with them for about six weeks. They're trying to pick up the language. When they would get mad at us as parents, the meanest thing that they could think to say to us is they would look at us and go, you gypsy. <laughs> it, it, was, it was hatred. Don't miss the irony that Paul, the Pharisee, the high-pedigreed Jewish educated theologian, God gives to him the task to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And what Paul's doing here is he says this, I, for this reason, a prisoner of Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. And then the next thing in many of your texts is there's this little hyphen. Think of that hyphen in the Greek. It's like paragraph markers. It's parents that what happens next is kind of a side thought. It's a rant. And that rant actually goes to the end of verse 13. Scholars call it that Paul went on a digression we know why he went on the digression, because of what he says in verse 13. Look down there, it says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul is concerned 
that his being in prison and the trials they're going through are going to affect their identity, that they're going to fall away, that they're going to miss the blessing. So let me do this. Let me just kind of read to you that, those verses through 13. I'm going to pick it up in verse 2. A prisoner of Jesus Christ on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, and it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. Verse 7, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring a light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Jesus Christ our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. I'm going to try to pull out, hopefully you'll see these in the text, three things that he focuses the Ephesians' uh, attention to, what he wants them to set their minds on, three things to help them when life is hard. Here's the first one. Hardships are not always about you. Hardships are not always about you. Paul is a pastor. He's concerned about the people in the church that he pastored in Ephesus. And um, it made me think as I was going through this chapter, when somebody comes to me in our church and they're going through a trial or a hardship or they're grieving, where are the things, what are the biblical truths that I try to point them to to encourage them, to strengthen them in those moments? James 1 two through four, I might take them there and it says, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, that God is using in our lives trials, difficulties, and hardships to strengthen our faith. I might go there. Or maybe I would take them to Romans 8 where it says, for I don't consider the sufferings of this present wor uh, world worthy to be compared to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. And I point out that one of the things that God does through hardships and trials is he focuses your attention on eternal things. That maybe this hardship or this trial is trying to get your attention to focus you on things that really matter. Later in Romans verse 8, 28, it says that God's working all things together for your good. Maybe I remind them of that promise or maybe I take them to um, Hebrews 4, 13 where it says that we do not have a high priest that can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but he has also been tempted in every way that we have been yet without sin. And saying that these hardships and these trials, they're nothing beyond what Jesus was willing to suffer on our behalf. And in going through these difficult times, you understand better your Savior's love for you. Like these are places that I would normally go. How your trials and your hardships are being used by God in your life. Paul never goes there in Ephesians 3 goes a whole different direction. And the first thing that he says is your hardships are not always about you. In verse 1, 
I'm suffering, I'm a prisoner for Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. Verse 2, stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Verse 8, I preached, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles. Verse 13, so I don't ask you to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, for you. Your hardships, the difficult season that you're going through might have nothing to do with you. Did you ever think about that? And the hard word that Paul is saying here is he's saying, sometimes when you go through difficult seasons, get your eyes off yourself. God might be using your trials and your hardships to accomplish something in someone else's life. Are you cool with that? When I was a kid, I was the youngest, and I was in the home. My dad was in his early 50s, and he made a, a loan to a friend of his, went to our same church. The guy just was in a real estate deal. He needed a bridge loan for 30, 60 days, and my dad made him the loan. And within 90 days, my dad realized he'd lost everything in his savings. My dad was born in 1925. He grew up through the Depression. He lost his dad at 14. He went into World War II. We didn't live extravagant in any way. Why? He didn't do anything wrong. He was being generous. And now he was faced with losing everything starting over in his early to mid-50s. Like, well, like, what's, why? Like, what's the point? I don't know that he ever figured it out. Here's what I know. Has his youngest son watching him go through that hardship and not become bitter? Profound impact in my life. This weekend, um, I did the funeral for a young man, 33 years old. He died of congestive heart failure. He was a kid that when I was coaching high school sports, I coached him. He was a teammate of Calvin's. He was 33. Died of congestive heart failure. Dad had called me a couple weeks before, asked if I would be willing to do his son's funeral. I'm telling you what, because I have kids in that same age group, it hit me hard. It's like, man, that's a call a dad never wants to make. That's not even a call a coach ever wants to hear. So I did the visitation on Friday night. I did the funeral yesterday. It was at our Spring Lake campus. And uh, as he was leaving Spring Lake to go to the graveside to put his son in the ground, talked with him briefly. And he said, you know what, David? I've been praying for uh, Jake. He's been sick for over two years, and every day the first thing I do is I get on my knees and I pray that God would heal my son. And he goes, starting today and for every day going forward, I'm going to pray for his friends that maybe somebody heard the gospel at the funeral or that God would do something to save their soul, to bring salvation through the testimony of this service. What a perspective. In the middle of his loss, he all of a sudden shifted his focus and said, I want God to use this horrible thing in my life to his glory in the lives of somebody else. Sometimes you're suffering, guys. It's not even about you. Here's the second thing I want you to see in the text. Sometimes you're, you're suffering and your hardships, it's going to be a mystery. You're not going to know why. Four times in the text... Paul says in verse 3, how the mystery was made known to me. Verse uh, 4, I got insight into the mystery of Christ. Verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. And in verse 9, to bring light to everyone, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages? Now, 
in the New Testament, when we see the word mystery, it's a little different than what we think. When we see mystery, we're like, okay, we got to figure out the clues. We got to look at the evidence. We got to figure out what's going on. Mysteries in the New Testament, you can't figure them out. The only way you get that truth is if God reveals it to you. A mystery in the New Testament is something that the Old Testament followers of Jesus Christ and the prophets, they didn't understand, they didn't know it, but God through his Holy Spirit supernaturally has revealed it in this time. And the implication there is that God doesn't always reveal all of his cards. Sometimes he holds some of them. Sometimes in the Old Testament, they wouldn't fully understand what God was doing, but it was going to be used and revealed to later generations. God holds some of his cards. Sometimes it's a mystery. You're going to go through hardships, and you're not always going to know why. Are you okay with that? One of the things interesting is you track that word mystery through the New Testament. Without exception... When God reveals the mystery, it's always better than what we could have imagined. Let me give you a couple examples. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Okay, so a couple things that he's saying in that text. You're going to live into eternity. We don't die when we die. Our body might die, but our soul goes on forever. We're eternal beings. But what he reveals in this mystery in 1 Corinthians, it's way better than that. Like, you just don't go on living. You get a new body. The, the, the perishable body now becomes imperishable. We're not stuck in this thing for all of eternity. That's good news. What a great revealing of a mystery. We're going to see this in a couple weeks, but in Ephesians 5... Paul writes this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Okay, up until Paul wrote that, the purpose for marriage revealed all the way back in Genesis 2 was for companionship, that the two should become one flesh, that man was not good to be alone. And now what Paul does in Ephesians 5, he goes, I'm going to tell you a mystery. This is even bigger than companionship. It's even bigger than oneship. Your marriage is a reflection. It is a human living metaphor of Christ's love for the church. Way bigger than we could have ever imagined. And what he's doing in Ephesians 3 is he's saying, look at verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Hey, the Gentiles have same equal standing as the Jews. It's not that God preached salvation to them, but they're kind of those lesser citizens over there. They're the same. We're one. The Jews would have never, would have blown their minds. So what I'm saying is, sometimes you won't understand. Sometimes there's mysteries, but the thing that I hope that you realize is, there will come a day, and it might not be until eternity, when God will have an explanation for the things and the hardships, and the trials, and the circumstances. And if you understood it from his perspective, like the prophet Habakkuk says, it would blow your mind. The mystery always is better than what we could imagine. And then here's a third thing. Hardships have a heavenly audience. Look at verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Here's what Paul just said. Angels are watching you. 
You never suffer hardship alone. There is always a heavenly audience. He says that through the church, that's the collective, it's not just the individual believers, but it's the collective of us believers. There are angels watching us today. They're observing the church because there's things that we're about and we're doing that they can't figure out, they can't understand it. Now, sometimes I think about the angels and they're watching our church. I'm like, I'm not sure they're learning what we want them to learn. But it's interesting. Please know this. Heavenly beings, angels, they're not all powerful. Angels are strong dudes, but they're not all powerful. They're not all knowing. They don't know everything. They're not omnipresent. They don't see everything happening all at once. They, they're spatial. God sends them to places. So, The angels are up there. This is amazing to me. The angels see God in all of his glory. Like there's things they understand that we can't comprehend right now, but there's things that we have that they can't figure out. Did you know that? Scripture gives us glimpses. It says in Job's 1 that the sons of men entered into the presence of the Lord, and it included not just the angels, but Satan, fallen angels and angels into the presence of God. It's in Job 1. And, Job, and, and God looks at Satan, he goes, where'd you come from? He goes, I've been roaming to and fro on the earth. And God's like, did you see my servant Job? That he's a blameless and righteous man? And Satan looks at God and goes, does he fear you for no reason? But like you surrounded him with a hedge, nothing bad happens to the dude. And over the next few chapters, Job endures mind-numbing hardships. Why? Because God's teaching something to the angels in heavenly places. In Hebrews, I'm sorry, in 1 Peter, Peter will write this. He says, concerning this salvation, the salvation that we have, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, in the things that have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. Here's all that says. Concerning your salvation, the prophets didn't even fully understand it. They're writing it down going, what in the world does this mean? And it says it wasn't for them. It was for you today, seeing what Christ has accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection. You have full understanding of things they long to understand. And as it relates to your salvation, the angels don't get it. How in the world can a dad lose his son? A dad who's never seen God in all his glory and yet still put his faith and confidence in him. How can that be? The angels aren't recipients of grace. They don't get it. So God is using us. We're the illustration. The angels are the student. God is the teacher. The universe is the classroom. And he's saying, listen, your hardships, they're not always about you. I could be using them to instruct the angels in heavenly places. Pastor John Stott, he says it this way. It is through creation or the universe that God reveals his glory to humans. It is through the new creation, the church, that God reveals his wisdom and love to the angels. So the angels are watching us as a church. What are they learning? Maybe they're just learning about God's patience, right? (laughs) We can test that. 
or maybe they're learning about followers of Jesus Christ who have never seen God face to face in all his glory, who are still willing to trust him when things get hard. Paul goes off on a digression. He's worried that the church is going to lose its identity. And he says, listen, your hardships aren't always about you. Hardships are sometimes a mystery and hardships have a heavenly audience. Let's keep going. Let's look at the prayer. It starts in verse 14. It says this, for this reason, same way he started verse one, he picks up that thought. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the father for whom every family in heaven on earth is named. Okay, why does he say that? Like, 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 why make the point that I bow my knees before the Father who names all the families in heaven and on earth? Here, here's the best way that I can explain it. In our family, we choose our kids' names. Kristen and I chose our kids' names. Kristen chose our kids' names. Okay? <laughs> As long as I wasn't too objectionable, that's the name that stuck, okay? So as parents, we choose our kids' names. Why? Because they're ours. I don't name your kids. <laughs> some of you name your kids the weirdest things. I'm just going to say, like, there's some weird kid names running around this building. I don't care. Name them whatever you want. They're not mine, okay? And as Paul begins this prayer. He says, every family in heaven on earth, I've named them. He just said something. God owns you. Every family, those who shake their fist at God and those who follow God. He owns them all. Do any of y'all have rebellious kids? Still your kids. It's an identity statement that he starts his prayer with. He says, God, everything belongs to you. Verse 16, I'm just going to read through the prayer right up until the benediction. It says in verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. A few things that I want you to note. Paul's on his knees praying. And here's why I think that's significant. Because this is the last section of chapter 3 before he's going to get really practical. Ephesians 4 verse 1, Therefore walk in a manner worthy to the calling which you've been called. Here's who you are. Here's how you are to live. And right before he gets to the practical part, he gets down on his knees in prayer. And Paul is modeling something for us by example that you can't do the things that he's going to ask you to do in the next three chapters in your own strength. The first thing that I see in this prayer, if you're keeping notes, is Paul prays for strength. Prays for strength. Verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, <clears throat> he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Verse 18, that you may have the strength to comprehend. He, he's praying for strength in your inner being. That's your eternal part. That's the real you. That's the part that lives forever, who you really are on the inside. The inner being is the place where the battle constantly rages between the things that you want to do, your feelings, versus the things that God's called you to do. That's your inner being. And what Paul is praying for is he's saying that you would be strengthened in your inner being, not your outer being. 
I think I can give witness. I, I can say this with confidence. That as I stand before you today, my outer being has never been in worse condition than it is at this moment. I'm closer to death right now than I've ever been. Okay? And some of you are like, yeah, I noticed. Like, like hit the gym. Make a resolution. Here's all I'm going to tell you. I can become a gym fanatic. It doesn't matter. My body's going to look worse in my 60s and then in the 70s than it does in my 50s. I can't stop the decay of the outer man. Or, or, or maybe I can look like Chuck Norris in my 70s on the Bowflex. Like, I don't know. Maybe I could. But it doesn't last. Paul's focus, he's like, listen, I want your inner being to be strong. I want it to be strengthened. And by the way, who's he praying strengthens it? Your exercise regimen or that the Spirit does it? And why is he praying that your inner body strengthened? Well, the text is real clear. Look at verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's a problem. Because if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he's already in your hearts. He said, this whole book is written to believers. Why is he praying for inner strength so that you can experience what you already have? And all I would point out is, here's where I think the need for inner strength is. Though as a follower of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Here's the question. Is he comfortable? Is he at home? It takes some inner strength to live a life in submission to what the Spirit is asking you to do. And there's a difference between living somewhere and being at home. Um, when our kids were growing up, when they were in high school, more often than not, we had our six kids and extras. So, some kid living with us whose parents had went on the mission field, parents had moved away and kids were finishing high school. So we constantly had these extra kids living in our house. And I remember we had this one girl who came and lived with us, really, really nice girl, scared that she might be here today. I hope not, okay? I hope she's here, but not for this story. I'll ask for forgiveness, not permission. And um, she would get home from college, work, whatever she was doing, 4, 4.30 in the afternoon. She would go into our living room, lay on the couch, turn on a Hallmark movie, and that's where she resided for the next four hours, okay? Cal would get home from soccer practice at 5.30, walk into the living room, see her laying on the couch, and give me crazy eyes. All he wanted to do was watch Sports Center. It's like, how is she so comfortable? Like, she is so at home. And we're like, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to make her comfortable. We want this to feel like home for her. He's like, not that much. <laughs> like, <laughs> is Christ comfortable residing in you? That word dwell, you all know what it's like to stay at somebody's other home. Maybe you're a guest, but you're fully aware that you're just a guest, but you're not really at home. Paul's praying that God would dwell, that he would settle in that he would get comfortable. That takes conviction, takes strength. And then here's the second thing I want you to see. He prays in verse 18 that you would have knowledge beyond knowing. That you may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Okay, thank you, Paul, for me as a preacher 2,000 years later trying to explain to you how to know something that's beyond knowledge. What, what is he saying? Here, here's the best way that I can describe it to you. Jonathan Edwards in a commentary on this text said, there's two ways that you can know that honey is sweet. 
One of them is through objective knowledge. You can read and study honey and know that it's sweet. There's also subjective knowledge. You can put it on your tongue. What Paul is saying here is, I don't just want you to know, I want you to experience, to know objectively and subjectively these things about who God is. There's something weird about us church people. If I can just give you at the end of this message, hey, here's three points of application. Go memorize this. Go study this. If I can increase your knowledge or if you can increase your knowledge, we believe that will keep you from doing what's wrong. But we all know the reality is we continue to do the wrong no matter how much we know. That's not what solves the problem. What Paul is saying, I want you to experience something. I want you to taste something that will be life transformative. Um, I won't ask for a raise of hands, but you know, we've had this wonderful couple of years where we've been dealing with this COVID thing. And I don't know if any of you have gotten COVID to the point where you lost taste or smell. Anybody had that delight? Oh yeah, I've been through that. Okay, no taste, no smell. Get up and brush your teeth in the morning. There's nothing even minty in your mouth. Full loss of taste and smell. Grab a piece of pizza. You know what it's supposed to taste like. You even begin to convince yourself that you taste it. And then you're like, nah, it's just cardboard. That's all I got. There's a difference between knowing and tasting. And Paul says, I want you to experience Knowledge beyond knowledge. Knowledge which surpasses knowledge. His prayer for the church is that their knowledge of Jesus Christ, their head knowledge, would, they, would, they would be so passionate, their identity would be so linked to who Jesus is that it wouldn't be just something that they knew, but it's what they would experience throughout their daily lives. Look what he says in the benediction in verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. To him who is able to do far more abundantly than we could ever ask and think. That's our God. So Friday night, I went to the visitation, then I went over to the Spring Lake campus. We had this thing called Party with the Pastors. It's for people new to our church where they can get to ask questions and learn something about the history of our church. And I was in the back. Cal was speaking and, and, and he was sitting there and he was reflecting on the start of our church that it was, at the beginning, it was me and Pastor Cal and Pastor Chris. And um, we had some dreams. Like, like, man, if we could just get to 300, if we could like pay salaries and stuff, that'd be awesome. And over the last 12 years, abundantly beyond what we could ever ask and think, People go like, well, how did you do this? How did you plant so many churches? How did you grow your church to such a large church? It's like, we didn't. We just had a bird's eye view on what God was doing. We're not even that smart. We didn't have any plans. We didn't have the vision. God did something abundantly beyond what we could ask or think. That's what Paul wants for his church. And here's the thing. If you've ever tasted that, if you've ever experienced it in your life, you don't go, okay, experienced it, can knock that off the bucket list, let's go play pickleball. You never do that. Once you've tasted it, you want more and you want more and you want more of God doing things that surpass our expectations and knowledge. How do we get there? Paul just exampled it. Get on your knees 
Ask God to do what only He can do. Ask Him to develop in you inner strength. Pray for these things. Because what follows in the next three chapters, it's really practical. But it won't make any sense. You have no ability to do it on your own if in the process you forgot who you were in Christ. If you lose your identity or if you believe that you can do it in your own strength. That's what Paul's been arguing for three chapters. It's going to get really practical. And it's my prayer that as we turn from this section of Ephesians into the next section of Ephesians, that that would be our prayer as well. God, do something in this season, in our lives, and in this church that is beyond anything that we could have hoped or asked. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this passage. I thank you for the example of Paul. Father, I'm thankful for rabbit trails and that Paul, not trying to write some masterpiece, just went raw and exposed his heart. Father, teach us to trust you in all circumstances, even when life is hard. It's in your name we pray. Amen.